We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello, and welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Bloody hell. Check. 26. In transitioning from polluting to non-polluting activities, communities and companies shall be supported fairly. And this is the very last of the 26 checks, and it really focuses on the, the nub of the matter, which is communities and companies. Just yeah. to break it down a bit, firstly, transitioning. This has to happen. And will happen in some manner or form. Yeah. When you say polluting to non-polluting activities, there are a few ifs and buts there, but that's the general drift. Carbon dioxide is pollution, which interestingly is not categorised as pollution, Mm. strangely, and therefore not controlled. But it's all pollution. Pollution of the oceans, pollution of the soil, pollution of the air, pollution of what we eat, etc, etc. And then when we get into the communities and companies, we've been saying that in a sense, it's all about the biosphere. In practical terms, it's all about the people. Yeah, it's all about people and our relationship to the biosphere and how we treat the biosphere. But the point of this particular principle is rather than saying to the oil industry, the coal industry, bad luck, shut up shop, lay thousands of people off, you sort out what's going to happen to your company, rather like the closure of the coal mines Mm. in the UK in the 80s, where it was just like they're shut, piss off and sort yourselves out. And of course, the legacy of that is still with us. In terms of Um, the the minor strikes. But also in terms of those communities which are still pretty devastated, essentially, and and didn't receive any transition help to go from, well, coal to no coal, or go from coal to something else. I'm thinking of that Hillary Clinton quote when she said, we're going to put a lot of coal miners and coal businesses out of business. Well, it's unfair because actually we've all benefited from the energy that coal has produced. We all have benefited from oil more generally. Many of us drive cars. And to just turn around and say, well, thanks very much, Chummy, on your bike. I mean, there's two points about it. One, it's simply unfair. Secondly, it's not going to produce the speed of change that we need. People in those companies that are at the top and uh, the staff 
need some help, some support, some and some that support would come from, I mean, government. You did mention in the book that this also requires an international effort. Some, I mean, let's take shipping, which is one of the big polluters. These huge container ships traveling around the world in support of just in time mm. uh, that we can buy anything anywhere, anytime. And it's like, okay, so what are, what are we going to do about shipping? Well, first of all, we need to engage and think about that with shipping companies and with the distributors and with people generally. And some of it is about tech solutions, you know, mm-hmm. ships with sails. But then you find that ships with sails are currently smaller ships. And because of economies of scale, they end up polluting more Mm. than the big ships. So what can be done? I was talking to a shipping specialist and he said, well, just immediately and immediately is what we need to focus on. Simply run the ships slower Mm. because they'll then consume less fuel. What will then happen is we'll need more ships because they're traveling more slowly. That will put up costs And there's an inevitability that once we price in the costs to the biosphere, so we have the real costs of producing all of this stuff, including the costs to the biosphere, prices will go up and there's an inevitability about that. And of course, that immediately brings in a supporting communities issue, because if you're at the bottom of the pile and your prices have gone up, then how is the tax system going to be adapted and changed so that those people are hit less hard or indeed hit not at all? So prices will go up, but then that puts some onus in market terms on the real solution, which is that we just need to produce stuff closer to home. Mm. Uh, And this notion that we've got into in terms of, you know, sending apples from New Zealand to the UK, absolutely nutty. It seems to me that a lot of the context of all of this, you know, in terms of communities and companies is about feelings and emotion. Psychologically speaking, if all we can see is doom, then I think we become paralysed. Doom is our destination, so, right, we'll just carry on by yeah, change. What's the bloody point, yeah. But if, for example, in relation to shipping, you've, you've worked out a plan and you start to implement that plan quickly, there is a way out of here. Mm. It's a bit like one of those game shows. Then people have hope. People mm. can see that... Hope springs from action, which I think is one of Greta Thornburg's points. Mm. We need these plans. We need this transition. We do. I, I think I feel like I want to dwell on the hopelessness a little bit because it seems to me it's the problem. And what we're talking about is the feelings of people who have been forgotten, uh, abandoned, unsupported, you know, oppressed, yeah. othered, vilified. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, in in some respects of workers in small towns in Britain and the US and elsewhere. And one thing when I was thinking about this, one thing that came to mind is this sort of Millwall football club. Mm. I think there's a song which goes something about everyone hates us, we don't care. And I was thinking, well, that perfectly encapsulates the attitude. And I, I actually saw it in relation to the Johnson government. And it brought to 
attention mm. the fact that actually it's not just the people at the bottom of the pyramid of the income pyramid who are feeling this way there are people all the way up you know mm. to the jacob reese mogs with their massive investment funds and so on yeah and and that yeah the the millwall thing and and of course people presume that if you know, we all hate Millwall for their behaviour. Somehow that will change them. Mm. And yet there we are. They're on the end of this sort of wall of hate. And become and, more entrenched. Yeah. And they become more entrenched. And so that's precisely not what we want. We want an understanding of why people have the attitudes they do. Well, you know, I remember listening or reading Timothy Morton, who I think is an English philosopher i think he might be based in texas or somewhere but yeah. his overall orientation on the climate and biodiversity crisis is that this is much bigger than us it's you know it's yeah. not my fault for driving yeah. a car that there's a climate and biodiversity crisis this is much yeah. much bigger than us and the proportions of that are huge but also he says something interesting he says it's very very sad and I was thinking that that actually reminded me of the Al Gore film, An Inconvenient Truth, where he was talking about, I think he lost his son. And it was this sort of unimaginable thing that had happened. Mm. And then he sort of mapped that onto the climate crisis. You know, that this is something that you think we take it for granted, but we could actually lose it. This actually could happen. Mm. Mm. And just to put the size of this thing into context, mm. I was thinking about something we talked about last week, which is the technosphere. And I was mm. looking into Peter Half, the abstract of his article, which whose title I've forgotten, but it's in the show notes from last week anyway. But the abstract spells out perfectly both the systemic nature of the challenge yeah. and also how, in a sense, we've reached this point. So what he says is that the technosphere, this is the abstract in full, the technosphere, mm. the interlinked set of communication transportation, bureaucratic and other systems that act to metabolize fossil fuels and other energy resources is considered to be an emerging global paradigm with similarities to the lithosphere, atmosphere, hydrosphere and biosphere. The technosphere is of global extent, exhibits large-scale appropriation of mass and energy resources, shows a tendency to co-opt for its own use, information produced by the environment and is autonomous. Unlike the older paradigms, the technosphere has not yet evolved the ability to recycle its own waste stream. Unless or until it does so, its status as a paradigm remains provisional. Humans are parts of the technosphere, subcomponents essential for system function. Viewed from the inside by its human parts, the technosphere is perceived as a derived and controlled construct. Viewed from the outside as a geological phenomenon, the technosphere appears as a quasi-autonomous system whose dynamics constrain the behaviour of its human parts. A geological perspective on technology suggests by strategies to limit the environmental damage to consider only the needs of people, are likely to fail without parallel consideration of the requirements of technology, especially its need for an abundant supply of energy. Now, for years, you know, philosophers have been kind of weighing up this, uh, you know, am I speaking the language or is the language speaking me? Um, yeah. 
or you know this thing that of the limits of my language the limits of my world you know that's the the limits of what i can imagine but yeah i think this passage really puts into context how our bubbles our individual mental bubbles are limited by this technosphere as yeah. he construes and it that's exactly the thing that we have to transition we have to get to grips with the technosphere and the way it's been created and it's semi-autonomous state and uh, change it very radically and rapidly. There was a piece by George Monbiot, I think it was this morning, saying, and, and a lot of people will say, oh, crumbs, you know, we can't possibly do this. You've just read that out. It sounds a bit doomish in the, in the sense that crumbs has just so much to do. Mm. But his point this morning was that actually in World War Two. When the US got involved or was preparing to get involved in the war, it transitioned industries at an amazing rate of knots. And so the car industry and all of its assembly line and the bolts into the floor were ripped out and the car assembly lines were turned into tank assembly lines in a matter of months. A lot of this, I think, comes down to the will. You know, I mean, you introduced me to Arthur Schopenhauer (laughs) and there's Schopenhauer saying, you know, the idea and the will. Mm. So the idea, I think, is very, very clear. I mean, the beauty of the current crisis with the climate is that unlike many, many problems, which are just so complicated, we don't know what to do. We do actually know what to do. Well, you say we we know what to do, but I think that in terms of communities and companies and transitioning, Timothy Morton's framing that this is huge and very, very sad, like there's an emotional core to this. And I was looking at these five stages of grief, and they just seem so extraordinarily familiar. I mean, this is regards to grief in general, but it maps so well onto the climate crisis that you have denial, anger, bargaining, depression and acceptance yeah and, and you know and that, if you think about so climate denial classic. climate anger bargaining yeah. in the sense of sort of lies and and kind of you know trying, yeah. trying oh, to please, undermine no, it. do i have to do this can we not find a way around it i think i've been in depression for a long time <laughs> you know it's this thing <laughs> that you, you try and somehow accept but don't want to look at all the time and then the acceptance i think is the sort of most promising part of it and which is where we'll come on to i suppose systems thinking interestingly that curve applies and we've used in the past in relation to change in companies and change in organizations oh, that's interesting people go yeah. through that right we've got to change because we're going bust or because we've run out of money or because it yeah and the first thing that comes out is denial no we don't need to you know everything's all right um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But so, then, of course, so, you get fee- feedback effects of denial, don't you, across, I mean, probably across the company, but certainly across the society where, for example, you know, in the impossibility of, of accepting the truth, denial and anger kind of hmm. root towards fascism, where you end up hmm. with will, political will, taking primacy over truth because the truth is perceived not so much as a prospect of, you know, change and growth, but it's total annihilation. So it doesn't matter what the other side say because they're trying to annihilate you. Yeah. So the political will of, for example, Trump is preferred 
by those communities than the acclimatisation process. Well, exactly. And maybe we can see in the leaders and politicians that are getting chosen or elected around the world, maybe we can see a progression. Are they denial politicians? Are they anger politicians? Are they grief politicians? Are they depression politicians? Mm. Or are they acceptance acceptance? politicians? And we need to get to the acceptance very, very quickly. But you mentioned the will. I mean, I I was thinking how, you know, there's this great line in Aristotle that men or people by nature seek happiness. We all want the same thing. I think that's the hope that this therapeutic process of systems thinking in the context of communities and companies offers. Yeah, there's a way forward. We don't have any choice. I mean, we have to create a way forward. And once you create a way forward, and once you've got a plan, and once you're implementing that plan, and things are starting to change, and it turns out a life isn't so bad after all, then you get motivation. Then you get a sense of, Christ, we can handle this. As Obama said to the assembled group of leaders after the global financial crisis, where Sarkozy stood up and said, nobody has a plan. And uh, Obama said, I think, uh, I think Gordon Brown has a plan. And he did. And I think you, you, you have a sort of a plan, you know, in terms of the individual acts and collective acts. So how do you see that working? At the end of the book, we put individual acts, working acts and uh, uh, some other acts. So what can we all do, you know, now, today? And some of it is just about changing the conversation. And there's a rugby player called David Pocock, a very fine Australian rugby player, who has come out and said, we've got to change, we've got to sort this, we've got to create a future that our children can actually enjoy. And so as someone with quite a lot of influence in his world, he has stood up and changed that conversation within the rugby world. Mm. And we can all change that conversation, uh, not in a way that's uh, critical or destructive, but in the way of acceptance. So that's the first thing. You Are What You Read is a very interesting book, and the the clue is in the title, Mm. which is basically saying, well, if you read many of the standard papers that, if you like, are at the denial end or at the anger end, then that's going to reflect in what you think and what you say. will change what you read, and it's refreshing to get out of the standard discourse. I think that that a basic rule of thumb is that to read, in a sense, is always to read the enemy. And even if they're well-intentioned, people are trying to draw you into their agendas. And it's for each of us to assemble our own mental wallpaper by reading critically and trying to look to what the agenda is and whether that's an agenda that we can sign up to or not. Yeah. And one of the other things, the notion that you get that the most of the masses are stupid, unable to grasp the issues, easily duped. Um, This, of course, is music to the ears of elites. Leave it to us. Mm. But actually, the masses aren't stupid when they're engaged, as every deliberative process has demonstrated. Galileo, I think we quoted this before, but I'll read it again. 
I've never met a man so ignorant that I couldn't learn something from him. That's true so, and absolutely great. I mean, it's it's interesting. I think James Joyce has a similar line about he's, he's never met a boring person. You often get this sort of mindset of, oh, I don't understand these people. I don't understand why people do this. And I always find myself thinking, well, of course you do. You just don't want to understand. And I yeah. think that lifting that veil of ignorance is a big part of good systems thinking. Thinking about that grief process, seeing that these angry people are in the context, both of this technosphere and its machinations, and the grief process of coming to terms with what's happening. Well, it's all about empathy, isn't it? It's all about trying yeah. to relate in a real way to people and not just sort of dismiss them with kind of witty yeah, ab- one-liners. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's possibly the most fundamental point that we can make today. We've talked about consumer power, and that can be applied. And just us getting more demanding in relation to companies and big organisations generally, public or private, and to oppose them where possible, reject lopsided terms of trade Mm. and to object to being farmed for profits. Another book, Stuffocation, where he's basically saying, you know, we're endlessly buying stuff, but actually you can find more happiness, more meaningful lives and express status more successfully through experiences rather Mm. than stuff. Um, That seems to be very kind of Marie Kondo, doesn't it? That reduction to what gives you joy and what is ultimately clutter. Yes, exactly. You also talk about collective acts. And I I was reminded of the um, Castro quote that if he was going to do the revolution again, he would have done it just with 12 highly committed people. Yeah, a small group working locally and, and lots of small groups locally. By sheer chance, I heard the Zapatistas on Saturday morning. Some of you may have heard of them. They, they almost run a sort of parallel governance in parts of Mexico in various villages and have a wonderful set of principles which aren't dissimilar to the principles that we've got in the book in terms of the way in which they run collective villages. And there's a small group that's doing some extraordinary things. And those opportunities exist all over the place. I mean, nonviolent direct action is worth mentioning at this point, which has an extraordinary history. And you can go back to Daniel O'Connell in Ireland in Mm. the first half of the 19th century to obviously Mahatma Gandhi. Well, we, we, we both stood on the Hill of Tara where he addressed over a million people. Yes, exactly. In Ireland, yeah. and people forget, and they both had extraordinary impact. I think we've mentioned the art of association before. De Tocqueville talks about this when he's writing on democracy in the United States mm. and comparing it with French democracy at the time. This is 1835. And he was astonished that unlike other countries, he's talking of the US now, which deferred to government and existing power structures to solve problems, Americans independently came up with their own organisations to solve the problems of the day. This ability to identify problems, form institutions and address them, de Tocqueville observed, made Americans exceptional. Each new need immediately awakens the idea of association, the art of association. I wonder where that that, that practice of association originated. Do you think that's to do with Quaker 
and other meetings. You think about there you are, you're a pioneer, you've left your country Mm. and all of its support or minimalist support. You've gone to this new country. There is nothing there. Well, apart from some people that live there already. (laughs) Exactly. But in terms of you arriving In in your perspective on it, certainly, yeah. You're going to have to sort things out. You haven't any choice. There there is no government at that stage. So, right, how are we going to build a house? How are we going to get food? How are we going to... Well collectively this group of us here are going to have to sort it out so i think in some respects it's it's merely a reflection of what was necessary mm. which then of course translated into how people behave some hundreds of years later as a friend in trying to explain the american political system and the business system once this is an american friend he he said look ed you have to understand that america is still a cowboy country and it sort of made a lot of sense right once you sort of grasp that there's that fundamental then, anarchy and the sort of outlaws and you can see donald trump riding into town you know with his six shooters blasting off in every direction and yeah it's just about power mm. it's about cowboys there are all sorts of things going on in transition terms in the business world. And so the insurance industry actually has been more powerful than many people realise. Because if you're an insurer, what are you looking at? Well, you're looking at some damn great claims coming yeah. in. I mean, enormous claims that are going to destroy the insurance industry. So as they set up these design authorities that we've talked about before in order that we could, in this case, make ships less liable to sink, uh, which is a huge cost on the insurance industry. Mm. So the insurance industry has been working a way to limit the potentially catastrophic claims that are coming from climate change. The audit industry that, you know, is this oil company, is this phrase that they use a going concern mm. so in order to get your audit signed off it has the company has to be a going concern well how many oil companies are actually going concerns they're starting to say well maybe not you would have seen the move in investment from some uh, more ethical pension funds to take their money out of investing in fossil fuels and those sorts of things so there are many and various things that we can all do. I think in politics, I mean, that's the area that I'd like to concentrate on particularly because you see so many politicians constrained <laughs> by their political parties and the need for politicians to put their head above the parapet and to say, look, there is something bigger than my political party Mm. here. There's something actually bigger than the political process and government here. And we really ought to be getting on and doing stuff. We've got this COP26 meeting coming up next week in Glasgow, where the world leaders will gather and there'll be a huge media circus and the will they, won't they sign some Mm. deal which is going to save the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And after a week, the whole soap opera will disappear and actually not a lot will change. 
And there is a need for political leadership which goes beyond them living in the existing world and to show some imagination. Well, to, to get out of the theatre and into the real world, I suppose, would be a good start. Um, yes, exactly. So where does that leave us? Well, we've. I suppose one thing that strikes me is, you know, we're, we're back to this divide and rule that we have in politics. And that set up with this thing that's been on my mind, this um, the technosphere, this big thing that sucks energy out of the planet. This kind of d- divide and rule is just a kind of a, a puppeteering exercise of this greater system. It points very much to the systemic nature of what we need to do. And I feel like I'm seeing more clearly now that it's not quite enough just to take this slightly non-confrontational approach and think, well, you know, if we just sort of steer them all around and, you know, we'll be able to work it out somehow. Actually, it it puts in sharper focus the need for radical action on some level in terms of stopping this sort of this this train. We have to get into this mindset of, well, first of all, things can't go on as they are. And we can't just sit here and fiddle, you know, whilst Rome burns, Mm. floods, experiences, pestilence, etc, 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 which is what we've been doing. Um, I think I've said before, you know, George Bush said in 1992, just before the Rio summit, mm. which which was oh yes, yeah, yeah, about the American way of life. Uh, yeah, the, the global leaders got together and said we're going to do something about climate change. Pity they didn't, but uh, there we are. And he said the American way of life is not up for negotiations. Period. Mm. And in essence, that's the phase of environmental history that has pertained ever since that the world has decided collectively that it's yeah, not that's going not to even change. the first step of the stage of grief is it that's just as pure denial it's not even yeah. anger environment and, and it's, yeah. it's not on the table and we've got to get beyond that and to say well actually whether we like it or not <laughs> our ways of life and our ways of living which which are no more than the ways of living that have accumulated over decades and indeed centuries to mean that this is the way we conduct our lives that the american and indeed many other people's ways of life it's not about negotiation of mm. course because the biosphere doesn't negotiate it just it's happens simply, yeah it simply responds to what, the stuff what, we throw at it you were just reminding me that you did mention that one city coincidentally enough that has actually transformed dramatically with regards to behaviour, uh, is Glasgow. Well, that's probably why the COP26 summit is being held there. But what are the key things that stick out in your mind in terms of Glasgow's well, transformation? In, in terms of transition, if you think about Glasgow, Glasgow was essentially built on shipping, shipbuilding, had a massive shipbuilding industry in the Clyde. And then progressively that closed as competition from Japan and Korea and elsewhere took hold but but also our management and our trade unions were just so so backward mm. 
that they couldn't handle the competition. Other countries have handled the competition successfully. Anyway, we didn't. And so that industry closed and Glasgow was uh, taken into a very significant depression Mm. for a long, long time. And then has really reinvented itself, partly being the city of culture, helped to not just reorientate what it did and its economic contribution, but it also reorientated its mindset and its self-identity, if you like. And now it's a comparatively successful and stable economy. And Mm -hmm. that actually is the sort of transition, I mean, could have been handled much better, which is what we're saying here. And the assistance could have gone in much earlier. And the thought about, okay, what's the plan? What do we do after shipbuilding? That could have happened much quicker, which is what we're arguing here. But it can be done. There's absolutely no doubt it can be done. And given it has to be done, well, let's get on with it. There's a point that you made in the book. I'm going to read it out because I didn't make it clearly enough. There is enough experience available now in handling closure and successful development of alternative economic activity for this to be applied generally. I was wondering what, in particular, in terms of closure and alternative economic development... I mean, take the Polish coal industry, which has to close, Mm. or the Australian coal industry. Let's leave with the Polish one, because... Greta Thunberg, in her recent programme, went to Poland and talked to the Polish coal miners. Oh, I haven't seen miners. that one. Yeah, OK. Yeah, talked to the Polish coal miners because they're not bad people. Mm. I mean, they found themselves in these jobs, work, you know, pretty hard jobs, actually, doing something which was used and needed and required. These coal miners themselves said, yeah, we know we've got to change. We know we can't keep burning coal. I mean, again, it makes the point that the masses are not stupid, but we need some help in transitioning. So you've got a very good starting point that people within the industry, they're sad, they're going to have to change. I've had to change jobs very substantially in my 40s and then in my 50s, and it's it's a real ask. Mm. But if you know you've got to do it, and then you get some assistance doing it. So what would might that assistance be? Well, the first thing, we need to have many more green industries, mm. many more industries, yeah, I mean, producing renewables, doing the whole cleanup of the oceans, doing the transition to regenerative farming, making more things locally mm-hmm. rather than globally. Right, okay. So these industries need to be developed and expanded. But what you're saying is that all these these industries are absolutely viable and waiting to be developed and expanded. They're essential. I mean, the the notion that at the macro level, en masse, there's going to be unemployment because these legacy industries producing pollution are going to close is nonsense because there's a vast need mm. for all of the cleanup industries and all of the new industries that we're going to need in order to get to a stable world. Well, get and to so, a viable habitat, I suppose, is what, what we mean. Yeah, yeah. sorry, much better put, Philip. Um, so, right, there, there we are. Here's a before, here's an after. 
how do we connect the Polish coal industry to a renewables industry, to a regenerative farming industry? Well, that will depend on the specific circumstances in that particular area. So then we get a plan, right? And now we're going to transition. We're not going to go, right, boom, you know, cut it off this morning, this evening, start again, as it were. No, there needs to be a landing zone. There needs to be a transition, a fast transition, Mm -hmm. but a transition. So all of this stuff is just waiting to be done. There's absolutely no question that it's going to have to be done. It's a question of whether are we just going to be forced to do it or are we going to anticipate to the extent we still can Mm. the need to do it and get on with it? And embrace it, yeah. And embrace it and say, yeah, this is great. At last, we're getting on top of this. I remember seeing on some TED Talk this curve of the implementation of innovation or something like this. Right. Uh, it was slightly kind of hyped, but the basic idea of it was you have this sort of bell curve where at one end you have the early adopters and the innovators, and then you have the early majority, and then you have the late majority, and then at the very other end of the bell curve, the sort of long tail at the other end are the people who won't buy a mobile phone until it's physically impossible to pick up a dial-up phone. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, this is the challenge, isn't it? Classically, when we did change programs with organisations, there was the third, a third, a third rule. There's a third of the people in the organisation who are going, yeah, of course we need to change. You Mm -hmm. know, I've been arguing that we need to change for the last 10,000 years. Yeah. Yeah thank God you're here, can we please get on with it? There's then a third who are uh, reticent and some indeed may object, and and often it's the objectors that once you turn them round are the most committed. uh, Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if someone's objecting... So the objectors are potentially people who you can open a gateway for if you get it right. Yeah, exactly. So so if someone's giving you a real bad time, actually, this is very good news because potentially that person is going to be a real champion for change. Hmm. How I'm interesting, when you, when you look at that in terms of the, the, the grief uh, process around change, that if they are, if they're negotiating, they're nearly into the next stage, you know, the next couple of stages towards acceptance. Yeah, exactly. You've got that third in the middle, which if you like, are biddable. And then, yes, you've got a third at the end who are never going to change. Mm-hmm. And what you then hope is that the mo- or you don't hope you plan for is that momentum of the then larger group that right. is changing and the momentum of the change will take will reach off. a critical so, mass, I suppose. Is yeah, so, for, yeah, so in the sense of, yeah, there's a lot of people still objecting. There'll always be a lot of people still objecting, but don't panic. Mm. <laughs> Don't panic, but you you might be able to get a critical mass around where you are, I think is the message, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Or we hope to get a critical mass around where we yeah. are. Yeah. I think at 50 minutes, that is the end of our pre-flight checklist series. Mm. Mm. I think we might have to have an addendum to really think about the whole thing in, in totality. Um, yeah. But it's been very interesting for me, I have to say. It's been good to tease out these issues week by week. Well, and and very interesting for me, too, to have your, well, philosophic input, but also your challenge to 
many of these ideas. And I mean, I don't know whether anyone who's listening is inspired to say, well, actually, what I'd like to hear now is X or Y or Z. But if anyone does, then please drop us a line. Yes, to the hidden power podcast at gmail.com or your Twitter handle, I think, is uh, at Ed A. Straw. So Ed with a capital E, A with a capital A, uh, S with a capital S, and then the rest of the case. Got it. And, yeah. Great. Well, thanks, Ed. It's been good. Brilliant. Um, and we'll talk soon, maybe next week. Okay. <laughs>